0: I think organizational life is complicated uh. and difficult. Oftentimes, good leadership looks like there's not problems, there's not concerns, uh-huh. there's not friction. Right. But I think acknowledging friction, acknowledging what's hard, acknowledging what's not working is a great source of learning. So I think if you have to front and pretend like everything's okay all the time, then you're going to you know, lose the chance to learn a bunch of stuff.
1: Friction. This huge psychological burden Without friction we would not have fire and we would not have sparks I gotta
0: get a (laughs) knife I gotta hide it They end up spending a lot of time
1: ruminating Hi, I'm Bob Sutton and this is the Friction Podcast On today's show, we have Melissa Valentine. Melissa is an assistant professor and my colleague at the Department of Management Science and Engineering at Stanford. Melissa did her undergraduate work at Stanford, so we're very proud to have her here. And she went on to get her PhD at the Harvard Business School working for a famous scholar named Amy Edmondson. She focuses primarily on teams and organizations. She's especially interested in temporary teams. teams that are formed quickly in hospitals and also online. She also did an intensive ethnography of the birth of a cancer center that we're going to talk about. I always love chatting with Melissa, and I'm sure you will enjoy hearing about her research and her ideas as much as I did. So, Melissa, welcome to the Friction Podcast. Thank
0: you for having me.
1: Melissa is just wrapping up this paper. It's about ready to be published in our the most prestigious organizational journal, the Administrative Science Quarterly. And uh, I I won't read the, the whole title, it's very long, but it's essentially about the role of hierarchy in organizational learning.
0: So the headline of the paper is that hierarchy can be useful for organizational learning. Uh the reason that that's surprising is because we assume that hierarchy is just bad for organizational learning. And
1: there's learning. a lot of theorists have written who made that argument and a lot of management gurus too. Yeah.
0: And and there are reasons that that's true. Um so status different the status differences that can come with hierarchy can be very inhibiting for people, mm-hmm. which is going to prevent learning. And hierarchy can sometimes perpetuate the status quo if you have all these layers of decision making that can stop, you know, innovation or change.
1: So so this was done in a in a cancer center. So that's- so so describe how much time you and your research assistants spent because it's it is jane goodall like i'm not sure jane spent this much time watching the apes the first time she was in the bush maybe she did
0: so in that ethnographic study i wanted to just kind of become part of the system. So it was over 18 months. And um, I was with them between 10 to sometimes during some weeks, it was up to like 40 or 50 hours a week. So between 10 and 40 hours a week, I was spending time with the people who were trying to lead the change. And I was just watching what they were doing. And there were two different consultant teams that I was watching. So I could compare the different approaches to bringing about this organizational learning.
1: So so um, so it's 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 admin and it navigator. If I can read my handwriting right. So uh, so what? Just because to me the the way the story unfolds in the paper is really interesting because it's this comparison of a team that uh, navigator wasn't really under quite direct hierarchical control. The sort of more informal and sort of loose. And then you had admin, which was the more top down one, and they kind of learned better. So so just tell us a little bit more about about how did things play out differently in admin versus versus navigator?
0: Yeah. So you have these two teams of consultants who are leading these change initiatives and both initiatives are really important. Both initiatives have a lot of support from the organization for them. They're both going to improve things for these cancer patients in really important ways. Um, The, Two consultant teams just had very different approaches on how to deal with the hierarchy within the organization. So one of the consultant teams, they had a lot of kind of passion and inspiration uh-huh. for what they were doing. So they were trying to lead by inspiration. So they uh-huh. just kind of had everyone really excited about the values, but no one really knew what they were supposed to do.
1: So navigate. So, so they essentially had a lot of heat without much um, detail of what to do afterwards?
0: Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. So
1: Huggy and I would say they were really great at uh, heating up the hot cause without really linking it to specific things people... Should do. Yes. Is that accurate? Yeah,
0: that's right. That's right. Yeah. And then the admin team, consultant team, in contrast, they were like, they did like surgical strikes. What they did is oh. they just, they went about, they identified the manager of any group that was going to need to change. And these these changes were complex. So it was going to involve, you know, facilities, IT, Mm -hmm. HR, finance, the clinical teams, the admin team. So all of these were going to have to change. Mm -hmm. So the admin team, their surgical strikes was to identify the manager of every group that was going to need to change. And they would go to that manager and they would ask the manager to make decisions Uh about how they were going to change decisions about how they would operate in the future. So it was during those interactions where they're talking to the managers and they're saying, our goal is to do this for our patients. And the managers would say, if you want us to do that, I'm going to need three more staff. Okay. If you want us to do that, I'm going to need more space. I'm going to need more resources. So that's where the renegotiation happened. It's the consultants asking the managers to commit to something new, right. and the managers pushing back and saying, I can't do that without more resources.
1: The degree to which the the there was this constant negotiation that would increase both, you use the word learning, yeah. the, the system knowledge of everybody throughout the system was constantly being updated, and then the resources would come to actually implement what needed to be done. And I can't figure out how you c- could coordinate that without having a people in a position of authority who also understood the whole system. So to me that's and we talk about good versus bad hierarchies, the bad hierarchy is when the boss keeps coming in and telling you to do stuff, but they don't understand what the hell your work is or how it works. Yeah. So that's one thing I really admired about the about the the authority figures in your study is they actually were they understood the work itself and were constantly updating. It was really quite impressive. So yeah. to me to me it means that hierarchy doesn't just have to be just orders coming down. It's this two-way sense-making process. That's
0: right. Yeah, my what I was observing the managers, they were not managing by like fiat or yeah, they were not yeah, authoritarian. They were helping. They were really helpful. They were oftentimes troubleshooting or coaching or and their workers seemed to really like the way that they work together, the workers were asking them for help. And so the managers were, they were, they were problem solvers, they were helpers. Um, And they had the authority to kind of buy things and Uh staff things and to give people breaks. And also to, you know, if if there needed to be extra training, then they could do that. So they use their authority in really helpful ways from the stuff that I was observing.
1: I mean, the implication is, is that there's good and there's bad hierarchy. And, um, but the case where you had the really feel good part but without the mechanism to implement it there wasn't enough focus on sort of system knowledge yeah Yeah. is is that fair
0: i think that's right yeah and the thing that i thought the thing that was really striking to me Uh is the way the system knowledge kind of was Mm -hmm. emerged or the way that they sort of brought it out to talk about it was to talk was to focus on kind of the accountability of the managers. Like what kind of reports were they running? Um, You know, what were they accountable for? And then when they were asked to be accountable for a new goal, then they could more easily talk about what they used to do and then how they would have to change. So that brings the system knowledge up. And it also gets people thinking about what am I committing to? Like what's looking, what am I doing on Wednesday that's going to be different than what I'm doing on Thursday? And if people can't like really concretely tell you what they need to be doing on Thursday that's different, then the change is unlikely. Likely to kind of take the way that it's been planned.
1: So what? So what was the metric for the admin team?
0: Yeah. So they wanted to get appointments for new patients within seventy-two hours of the first referral.
1: Because treatment's so important for a cancer patient.
0: Yeah, for for state of mind and for health, for actual outcomes.
1: And so, so how did the numbers change?
0: Before they put the admin cell in place, um, patients were waiting. You know, a week, two weeks, sometimes, and then after they had this admin cell in place, they were getting new. They were getting appointments for new patients within seventy-two hours, like ninety percent time. of the time.
1: So you're looking at these distributed groups that are doing quite complex tasks. To actually, Mark. More complex than people thought was possible even before. So what what are you learning about um, how work is changing?
0: So the distributed work that we're studying, we're calling flash organizations. So people from all over the world will come together on a Slack channel. Uh And they'll talk to each other on the Slack channel and get really complex work done. What I loved about this study was seeing how much fun people had. Ah. So it's actually people who were working as individuals being brought together in these groups. In the
1: online platform.
0: In the online platform. And they're having a blast. So Slack has this functionality called Giphy where you can like send each other funny pictures. So the Slack channels for these Flash organizations were just constantly, you know, were people just constantly talking to each other, sending each other Giphy's, telling jokes and um so it is complex but it's it's a similar dynamic where People like working in groups. They like when they're supporting each other, um, it's really fun.
1: Well, it, it is funny because uh, um, our producer, Rachel, was just talking about this notion of going from uh, me to we. And it's funny because when you go across your different studies, you see it. I, the, the other thing that's really striking me, and literally, this is like we just ran into the CEOs in my office just a few minutes ago, and uh, a Stanford student who uh, she's founded a company. And I was trying to figure out how many employees she had. And so I think she's got two full-time employees, but then uh, she's got, first of all, about 20 contractors. And then she's got six or seven um, clients. And she talks about how every night, so, this is part of the problem. She spends five or six hours um doing stuff on slack with with each one of her clients and she feels like she's a member of the organization wow so yeah. it's just it's just like life's getting crazy so so I thought she was running a three person organization, but well, she's got I don't know, 20 contractors, and she's a partial member of seven client organizations. So I said, so your real network's really about 60 people, but it, it just looks like you and two other people in an apartment in San Francisco. So, so I'm getting really confused about how big her organization is and what and what it means to scale.
0: Yeah, I think that's really common now. The boundary of the firm is getting really hard to interpret.
1: Well, that is interesting because, I mean, there's this, there's this notion of sort of latent networks of people who are around who you trust, who you can call on as the moment arises and they can call on you. So increasingly that's what the web is allowing is us to have bigger late cause we can't deal with everybody all at once, but on any given day we sort of have a bigger menu to choose from is yeah. sort of what you're describing. Yeah. I'd love to the, face. Yeah.
0: I wonder if it's more like problem based or like project based. work. Yeah, yeah. And so you like, you know, you, Kind of spin people up or, like, draw on your network for different problems or projects. But it doesn't seem like it's loyalty to, like, an organization anymore.
1: Well, well, so so that's what's really interesting when I think about your flash teams and I think about um, the scaffolds. You have you, – uh, the one's face-to-face work and the other one is, is distributed work. You have these uh, short-term relationships where people develop pride. Yeah. They start feeling competitive. Yep. They feel loyalty to one another. And it, it happens so quickly. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's, 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 it, it's amazing that we've evolved that way, given that, you know, we started out in these sort of, like, <laughs> troops where we would be together for life. <laughs> yeah. But as human beings, we, we were able to do that. That's true. Well said. So, so let's talk um, about this sort of amazing scaffolding paper. In some ways, I see you as, uh, as sort of half data scientist, and half anthropologist in some ways, when I look at your method, your methodology. So, uh, so, so for this one paper uh, on scaffolding, let's start out in the bad old days when you first okay. studied them. So, when you walked in, what did you see? What, what what was the madness like?
0: So, in the bad old days, in the bad old days, uh, the way the work was structured is um, a patient would come, and the first nurse who was available would sort of take the medical history, put it in the chart, and then set the chart on the counter. So this is one of, you know, 10 or 20 nurses who's in this giant room at the time. And then they would set the set the chart on the counter, and then the first available resident would come and get the chart. So that's one of, you know, 10 residents who's also running around this giant room. The resident would do his or her work, return the chart to the counter, and then the first available attending would come and take the chart. So this is one of, you know, six attendings in the room. So you have all of these people in this giant room and there's no structure for keeping track of who's working with who so any nurse could be working with any resident and any attending and people would on forget who
1: was who they were working with with which who's my patient Who's, who's my, my nurse? Right. Who's yeah. my doctor? Who's yeah. my attending? Yeah. That got asked constantly, as I recall. Constantly,
0: yeah. And and in the emergency department, you have constant turnover because you have new residents coming in. You have attendings rotating throughout the hospital or throughout different hospitals. You have, you know, trainees. So they didn't even know each other's names, you know, within shifts. So people are walking around being like, who's Nurse Jackie? Have you seen? So they're like reading the chart that Nurse Jackie is the one who's on this patient, but they don't know who Jackie is.
1: So so the friction is essentially, I mean, because I remember you from – the. the job talk i reread the paper again but this sort of image of of just people just wandering around Trying to figure out who the heck they're working with. Who they're working with constantly, right. all all the time. So, right. it, it's, and just imagine this mass of sort of thirty people. So that's yes. before.
0: That's right, and it's um, so you know one resident is sharing six different patients with six different nurses, for example. So that's just a lot of complexity for the for any one person to kind of keep in mind.
1: So so okay so so now now describe to us they, they had this pod structure which is it's it's incredibly simple intervention. So describe what it is.
0: So what they did is they divided the ED into four. Four, and then later, five pods. So the pods are just counters, counters, and inside the counter would stand one attending, two to three residents or medical students, and then three nurses. So now you have a team. You have a counter around a set of roles, and those people would work together on a shared set of patients during that shift, right? So you have a big room that's now divided up into five. Kind of small So essentially,
1: pieces. you know who your five or six coworkers are at all times.
0: Yeah. So now you have a team of you know around six people, and the six people still changed as frequently as you know before the intervention when you had as much you know fluidity with twenty four seven operations and with all the trainees and things like that. So the pods still had that kind of turnover, but just by bounding it to six people, kind of who are standing close to you and you have the same patients that let people really be able to focus on the same work and on the same kind of set of collaborators together. Kind of as you would expect with this intervention, the number of people that anyone was working with after was much smaller, Mm -hmm. which let, you know, you can imagine that being a very, you know, simplifying, um, more focused way of working. Um, We were also able to look at the throughput time for any of the patients. So before it was taking on average eight hours for a patient to get through this emergency department. Mm -hmm. And the simple intervention of dividing people up into these kind of standard scaffolded teams reduced that throughput time to five hours.
1: So, did, did they did they like it better, or, or is that just a
0: Yeah, the staff, the staff liked it a lot better. So I spent time observing. Um, What was really cool to watch in the pods is they developed this really fast paced teaming. So they would, you know, they would sort of like run into the pod and, you know, someone would kind of shout an update, you know, here's the patient's lab value back and then someone else would acknowledge it got it. I'm putting it in the computer, uh. so they developed this really quick, fast paced communication, and they were constantly just checking in and updating um, each other. So the communication got much better and much faster. They described that before the intervention, the nurses would be on one side of the room and the doctors would be uh. on the other side of the room, and the nurses would feel really timid and they wouldn't want to like walk across and talk to the doctors. But when the doctors were standing right next to them with the same patients, then they felt much you know it felt much more empowered and sort of like they had the right to just kind of constantly speak up. So one of the other things that
1: really is striking and is also related to uh, some of the other work on online teams is very often these people had didn't know each other at all before right. they started the shifts, right? It was just a, a literally a structure to help you deal with strangers and you all sort of knew what the program was so you could just go.
0: The other th- cool thing that developed is um, they started, they called them the Pod Wars. So the uh-huh. Pod the pe- Wars? Pod Wars, yeah. Uh-huh. So the people in the po- the teams in the pods started competing with each other. So what's really cool about that is it changed the in-group. So it used to be, you know, nurses on one side and doctors on the other uh-huh. side. But then in the pods, now you have like Pod 1 nurses and doctors together competing with pod two nurses and doctors together so they would compete on who is processing patients the fastest
1: so so if we were gonna for our listeners uh come up with a little bit more general advice uh what advice would you give them about structuring teams or structuring work from uh from this research
0: um so i guess this research suggests that a little bit of structure can be helpful to people. Like if people are sort of having to wander around, locate each other, figure out who their partners are or things like that, it, that's, it's just another kind of layer of coordination burden you're putting on them. So a little bit of structure helps because they can find each other more easily. They know how they're accountable to each other. But the other piece of it, I think, is helping people have an in-group even for a short time, even a minimal in-group for a short time can be really fun and energizing.
1: The other thing that, that, that strikes me, and you and I have talked about this a lot since we're we're both sort of in the, the J. Richard Hackman lineage. That's right. <laughs> J. Richard Hackman being the most famous, she's passed away unfortunately, most accomplished groups researcher who ever lived, who probably pounded into both of us that uh, once your team gets uh, bigger than seven or eight, you're in trouble and a right. five or six person team is for most jobs about right. If an organization sucks or a leader sucks, the first question I ask is not um, what does a leader do, the question is how big is the team? Okay, so we've been talking about a lot of unavoidable friction and friction that's bad. But um, can you think of times or places when uh, friction is good, when making things uh, more difficult to do is a good thing? You see any of that in your research?
0: When people have jobs, when they have things that they're responsible for, they take a lot of pride in doing a good job. Mm -hmm. And so when I was seeing people hold each other accountable, it was... I mean, it was small. It was just reminders. It was like, hey, remember you were going to send me this email or, hey, you were going to do this report um, or, you know, hey, you were going to put together that matrix or that performance metrics. So it was very it was light. It was light accountability. And people.
1: so uh, so, so I I really like that because this idea about pride, because in the management literature, so often we talk about um, intrinsic rewards extrinsic rewards, which are great because one is feeling feeling great about how interesting your work is. The other one is feeling great about how much money you're making. But, um, but if you look at what sociologists say, sometimes they talk about this notion. That actually, a more effective control mechanism is when we all – take pride together in a job well done and that's the whole thing that runs Pixar the sort of Ed Catmull Steve Jobs, John Lasseter thing, the people who really built that culture is what everybody cares about is doing a movie that they are proud of no matter how much it kills them and so you don't have to nudge people very much you just have to sort of remind them of, about the pride thing and that, and that, and so it's really interesting that you go back to the to the pride thing because i mean yeah. they, they're not making computer hardware or software movies they're saving people's lives
0: That's right. Yeah. And i i was impressed by how competent people were in their sphere, in what Uh, they were good at and what they were responsible for. They were competent with their software. They knew their staff. They knew the systems. They knew what they were accountable for. And so when the consultants came along and said, here's this new goal, uh let's change for this, people were game. They wanted to change, but they were were just busy and Mm -hmm. they, they didn't have time. They didn't know what to do. So the accountability was you know, you're doing all of this stuff. Remember this new report you're going to do. And that simple reminder, just remind, like it got people thinking about the change, the improvement for the patients. So while they were doing all of this stuff, they were so competent Mm -hmm. and and so proud of, they were able to add things and, and optimize and change. But it was, it was collaborative and collectively helping each other kind of enact their important accountability.
1: So, um, so if you had a magic wand and could get every leader in every organization to start doing one thing to make organizations or the world a better place just to, to start doing one thing what would you what would you have them do
0: It would be go see
1: Go see Go
0: see it would be go to the place where there's the friction and observe and empathize with the participants in the system there
1: so, so this is this is very consistent with uh, so one of the recommendations for Munoz, who's the head of United, is he should be required to fly around the world in the middle seat and coach for the next three weeks. That's
0: right. That's right. <laughs> go see <laughs> see what it's like.
1: So, <laughs> yes, so exactly. I, I I really want him to do that. Yeah. I mean, or If he just go to South Africa, that would be might be enough one for him. Time. <laughs>
0: yeah. That's
1: right. <laughs> anyway, so 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 that's this is the the David's um, Kelly School of Management. Is since I, I used to watch him do this at Idea when we did the ethnography there and then and then I, so David Kelly's the founder of the D School and of IDEO, and and was CEO of IDEO for a long time, and uh, so whenever um, people go up and complain to him, he would kind of acknowledge their pain and say, uh, life's messy. If you yeah. want to do something creative and interesting, this is just this is just the way it's 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 going to be. The other thing it reminds me of. Is one of my is one of my favorite stories. So I gave a talk um, at a law firm called King and Spalding, big law firm. And it was a and, and when you have a big law firm, it's a part it's a retreat. There was five hundred partners or something there, and they have all these different affinity groups. So it, it'll be like the female attorneys, the gay attorneys, the attorneys who went to Harvard. Your, uh-huh. One of your alma maters, um, and one of the cl- one of the affinity groups they had was the Grasses Browner Club, and these are the people who left King and Spalding to go to other places that that were actually much worse than. Um, King and Spaulding and they came back and I just love that because this no- this notion that everything's going to be clean and beautiful is just it's, it's a bit of BS that I think sometimes those of us in the management business who tell stories we, we tell them and uh, and all we're doing is telling sanitized stories and that's, that's sort of cool. That's
0: right. Embrace the chaos. Embrace the
1: chaos. Try to clean it up but, yeah. but deal with it. Yeah. It. So Melissa, thanks so much. It's, it's great to talk to you. It's good to have an excuse to talk to you actually.
0: Thanks Bob. This was fun. Thanks.
1: A couple of themes running through Melissa's work are that people like working together and hierarchy isn't necessarily bad. This is something that I found in my own work as well. Not only do we as human beings actually like hierarchy, we actually need to know who's in charge in order to function in our teams, to get um, things done in organizations, and to make decisions. Next week on the podcast, we are continuing our dive into academia. Professor Katie DeSales has some incredible research on prison guards and flight attendants. We'll talk about how the folks in these highly stressful positions are able to navigate workplaces full of friction. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you can listen to the episode as soon as it's released next week. And please rate and review us on iTunes to help get the word out about this podcast. The Friction Podcast is a Stanford eCorner original series brought to you by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and the Designing Organizational Change Project. Friction is produced by Eli Shell and Rachel Jilkowski. Michael Pena and Monica Yort are the outreach team. Daniel Stucey is our designer. Sarah Kahn and Devor Sankovic provide web support. And an extra special thank you to my colleague in the Department of Management Science and Engineering, Melissa Valentine. And now for the final tangent.
0: What I observed for for senior leaders, um, it, it seemed like procedural justice was one of the most important things. So, what's that mean? <laughs> procedural justice just means um, there's like agreed upon set of rules for how decisions are going to be Uh made and it's transparent and agreed upon so that people aren't guessing, you know, why is this getting funded and this not getting funded? Uh Why is this person getting promoted and not this person getting promoted? So if there, if it seems like the processes whereby all these decisions are being made are fair and transparent, then even if there's bad news, Uh people can kind of get behind it because they understand why.